the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to a special edition of Lifeline, Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. I'm Craig Roberts. As you probably have learned by now, evangelist Billy Graham passed away today at the age of 99 in his home in North Carolina. A well-known minister preached throughout the United States and Europe after World War II, emerging as a rising young evangelist. By 1949, in a series of revivalist meetings in Los Angeles, he was launched to international prominence. Throughout his career, conducting campaigns across America and across the globe from the 1950s through the late 1990s, Dr. Graham spoke to over 100 million people sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He often said that his one purpose in life was to help people find a personal relationship with God. Billy Graham's counsel was also sought by presidents and world leaders, and he received many honors from both secular and religious arenas. Billy Graham, dead today at the age of 99. During these next two hours on Lifeline, we're going to be taking a special look and tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Our friends at Moody Radio have helped produce a very special tribute to Dr. Graham, which you're going to hear in just a moment. And then we invite you to stay tuned for a real treat. Coming up tonight in hour number two of Lifeline, we're going to take you back to Billy Graham's first crusade. Of course, you know, he did a series here in the San Francisco Bay Area, most recently in 1997, where over the course of about eight weeks, he spoke three nights in Oakland, three nights in San Jose, and three nights in San Francisco at the Cow Palace, where he first came and spoke clear back in 1958. Tonight in the 6 o'clock hour, we'll give you a complete sermon by Dr. Graham from that 1958 crusade at the Cow Palace in San Francisco entitled, The Offense of the Cross. As tonight, we pay tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. Christ offers you tomorrow looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He offers tomorrow. Tomorrow belongs to Christ. The kingdom of God is going to triumph. The unmistakable voice and clear message of Billy Graham. Welcome to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. He's been heralded as the most recognized man in America. And over decades of service, his preaching has guided thousands around the world into Christ's kingdom. Over the next hour, we'll trace the remarkable story of Billy's call to service and the challenge he offers you and me. To do this, we're going to open the archives and hear segments from crusades and conferences, messages delivered on the campus of Moody Bible Institute, and interviews by several of the Moody Radio staff. We'll begin with a studio session from 1997. Wayne Shepherd sat down with Billy to talk about his autobiography, Just As I Am. Uh, you say in your autobiography that it seemed that as you were writing it and preparing it that you were recounting these things like they happened just yesterday. 
Uh, what is it like to take a look back at the sweep of your life this way, and uh, what, what impact did it have on you? Well, I had to have a lot of help in, in writing the book because uh, – but I did find that my wife had kept almost a diary hmm. all of her life. She's uh, – and her letters to her parents or letters that she and I had back and forth provided a great deal of information. And it brought back uh, to the both of us a great deal of um, – a great many memories. And, of course, the Chicagoland area – was the center of a great deal of our activity because mm-hmm. we went to school at Wheaton. And we got married uh, as a result of our meeting out there. And then we went to Western Springs for the little church. And then Youth for Christ started, and I was asked to be the first uh, employee or the first evangelist. And uh, this was our headquarters. So mm-hmm. Chicago was sort of the center of my life for a number of years. And I preached all over the area because... Uh, one reason, and I shouldn't say this, but uh, we needed the money. They, <laughs> they'd give you $10 usually, you know, if you'd go and preach at a church or a banquet or something like that. And uh, they paid me $45 a week out at uh, Western Springs. And for Ruth and me, that wasn't quite enough. And uh, so we earned a little bit of money by me going around speaking. But, of course, my main uh motivation was Christ. Yes. I wanted to preach the gospel of Christ. You write towards the end of your book that uh, you say, I've often said that the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is ask, why me, Lord? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, uh, because I, I felt that I had very little ability. Or I had not uh, finished my education except an A.B. degree. I wanted to go on to a seminary or to a graduate school. And uh, because of the war and many other things, I was not able to do that. And uh, in the Youth for Christ, I found an avenue and an opening for evangelism on Saturday nights, as we tried to do. In fact, I spoke the first night at Orchestra Hall, where we held our first Youth for Christ meeting in Chicago. Was World War II over yet at this time? No, it was still going on. And uh, I was I, I was a chaplain. I'd already signed up for the chaplaincy, and I was uh, inducted as a first lieutenant. And uh, then I wrote to the chief of chaplains and told him that I felt that I was reaching more young people and soldiers and so forth on Saturday nights in this Youth for Christ than I would be if I came into the chaplaincy. And he was a very warm kind of a person. I've looked at the correspondence back at the Pentagon and uh, he agreed, and he said, if this is what God wants you to do, I'd do what God wants me to do. Hmm. So I asked for an honorable discharge, which I received. I'd already received my medical uh, examinations. And so I went uh, back to where we lived in Montreat, North Carolina, and from there I began to travel throughout uh, the country and eventually the world. I'd like to talk with you further about this call to be an evangelist. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But let me take you back to the early years growing up on the farm uh, in North Carolina. And then you must have been a teenager when Dr. Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte and preached. And that impacted your life uh, greatly because you accepted Christ there. What, do you remember what the message was, what he preached that night? No, not that particular night, but he, 
he preached something I had never heard about before, and that was the second coming of Christ, and that intrigued me. He talked about uh, Armageddon. He talked about uh, the various things that we know so well about prophecy, and I'd never heard such preaching. We went to a very small Associate Reformed Presbyterian church, and our minister didn't uh, talk along those lines. He was a post-millennialist and so forth. And uh, so Dr. Ham was used of God to speak mm-hmm. to my heart. And one night I, I remember that I was under deep conviction of sin. I was not a great sinner in the sense that I went out and did terrible things. But uh, I was a sinner by birth. In sin did my mother conceive me, and it was that type of conviction, and uh, I knew that I needed Christ. There was a void in my life. I understand that you tried to avoid becoming convicted. You and Grady, your good friend from those childhood days, you actually volunteered for the choir so you wouldn't have to to look at Dr. Ham. That's right, (laughs) because he would always point his finger right out in the audience and seem to... Uh, landed right uh, on me from time to time. And I went up in the choir and sat down beside a young fellow by the name of Grady Wilson. He was up there. I don't know whether that was for the same reason, but that's where he was. He had a brother by the name of T.W., and T.W. was a little bit uh, hesitant that time about uh, spiritual things in comparison to Grady. T.W. is sitting across the room from us right now with a broad (laughs) smile. (laughs) Yes, he could uh, answer it much better than me. We'll hear more of Billy's recollections from his interview with Wayne Shepherd throughout the hour. One of the significant events that Billy spoke at was the Urbana Student Missions Convention, sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Here's a powerful challenge Dr. Graham gave the students in 1981, a challenge that still holds true today. Just before World War I, A young man arrived in Cairo, Egypt. He was 25 years old, a graduate of Yale University and Princeton Seminary. He was tall, handsome, athletic, intelligent, single, and very rich. His name was William Borden, and he was the heir to one of America's great fortunes. But he had turned his back on all the privilege and all the luxury and all the money, and he had given his money away and was on his way to China as a missionary. But shortly after arriving in Cairo, he became ill with cerebral meningitis. And in a matter of days, he was dead. And many students back here ask, was it worth it? Later, his biographer said of him that Borden said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. It had no place in his dedication to the Lord. What about you? Think of it. No reserve, not holding back anything. No retreat, never turning back from the path God had set before him. No regrets. There are a thousand things you can do with your life, a thousand ways you can spend it. But how many of them will enable you to say at the end of your life that you have no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets? There's only one way you can truly say that, and that's to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. After this break, we'll continue Wayne Shepard's interview with Dr. Graham. You'll also hear a conversation that Moody Radio's Stan Ferris had with Billy. Ambassador of the Gospel continues in a moment. 
You're listening to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Our special program will continue in just a moment. Welcome back to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Moody was in Ireland, and he heard Barley say, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man totally committed to him. But Moody said, By the grace of God, I'll be that man. And Moody didn't have much. He didn't have a great education. But what he had, he gave it to the Lord, and God used him. God is searching for a man. Fill the gap and be God's man of tomorrow. You can be that woman and you can be that man. A call to service given to the students at the Moody Bible Institute. That was recorded in 1973. And this challenge echoes on as we consider the remarkable legacy of Billy Graham. In this next highlight, we'll play part of Stan Ferris's conversation recorded at Urbana 81. Let's listen now as Stan asked about Dr. Graham's family life. Also this year, your mother died uh, this summer, and I was going to ask you if you could give us an idea of what kind of effect she had on your life and ministry. She had a tremendous effect uh, because my father did not want me to go to college. He felt I ought to stay at home and be a farmer. My mother felt I should go off and get an education. My mother went out and... um, Uh, She greatly influenced me, uh, both spiritually and um, intellectually and every other way. And she was a great woman of God. And I have just been reading uh, some of the comments that she made in the last two years before her death and some of the great letters that she wrote to people throughout the world. And she was a woman of tremendous depth. And uh, the prayers that she prayed for us and uh, the things that she said that have been recorded. Uh, We probably will write a book on her one of these days. Somebody will, because it's just too remarkable to let it pass. And uh, she had a great uh, impact on me as well as my father. My father was a godly man. He He did not have much formal education, I think a third grade education. And uh, yet I never heard him say a slang word. I never heard him or saw him do anything that I thought was immoral or unethical in his whole life. And he was just a plain good man. And then about 1934, he was awakened spiritually. He had always thought that he had committed the unpardonable sin. And uh, this affected his life. But in 1934, when uh, it was explained to him what the unpardonable sin was, the fact that he was disturbed about it, that uh, he surely had not committed it, that God would forgive him. It changed his whole life. And uh, people would come for miles around just to hear him lead a prayer. He was a great uh, prayer in public. He could lead a tremendous audience in prayer, and they would just feel the power of the Holy Spirit come in as he prayed because he really knew how to pray. And I never forgot that. When I hear stories like that, I ask myself if I could ever live up to that kind of an image for my children after hearing tremendous stories of influence from parents. Well, Do you ever feel like you, you couldn't live up to what your parents gave you? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about my mother when she was dying, uh, uh, my two sisters and my brother were there all the time. I, can, I would go and come. And I was with her a number of times during that last month. 
And uh, she would um, look into heaven and talk to her husband and to her father, who was a Civil War veteran, but a godly man. And she carried on conversations with him. And I believe with all my heart that she was actually looking into heaven. And uh, then um, she told my sister-in-law one day that she had had a terrible experience that she couldn't tell anybody about. And, uh, of course, she got over it. It just lasted a couple hours. And so someone asked me what I thought it was. And I said, well, probably my mother has already looked into heaven and seen my record. And uh, she's... (laughs) And she's horrified that I didn't take advantage of all the opportunities I had. I'll study the Word of God as much as I should have. or prayed as much as I should because I think that I always feel that um, there's just not, un, you know, that even the best we do is a failure. I, I feel that way constantly, that, uh, that there's so much more that I could give the Lord. And... Uh, I have felt uh, at times that my life, from God's point of view, has been a failure because He gave me many opportunities and that I could have taken, that I didn't. And um, if I had to live my life over again, I would make different priorities. I would do a lot less interviews like this and uh, a lot less preaching and speaking, and I would study more and pray more. I'd... And as a young person, I would memorize all the scripture I could. And I would like to be able to say that I had memorized the whole New Testament, as I have met certain people who have done that. Well, I haven't, and I wish that I had. Recently in uh, Christianity Today, you said that mass evangelism was a misnomer. Maybe you could expand on that and help me understand. Well, a mass uh, is, uh, is any... If you have more than two people, I suppose you'd call that a mass because it's relative from there on, whether it's two or 2,000 or 20,000 or 200,000. It's only relative if you're talking to more than one person. But it's really not uh, mass evangelism because in evangelism and in the preaching of the gospel, everyone sits there as a part of a mass in the beginning, but then they become an individual and they forget they're sitting with other people under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they are thinking about their own situation, their own life before Christ. And uh, when they make that commitment, hopefully most of them will not come because somebody else came, but they'll come because they're coming to Christ as though they were the only person in the world. Dr. Billy Graham's interview with Moody Radio's Stan Ferris that was recorded during Urbana 81. The music we just heard was the choir from the Los Angeles Crusade of 1963. Let's return now to Wayne Shepard's interview with Dr. Graham. It was based on Dr. Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. We'll learn more about Billy's recollections of his early ministry. Here's Wayne. Well, let's talk about the crusade ministry, which began um, about late 1940s. We're talking 1947. I think your first crusade was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, if I have the chronology correct. But it was the 1949 Los Angeles crusade that really seemed to launch uh, the ministry uh, that's associated with your name. Uh, What happened in Los Angeles that made it different? I think it was the dedication of the committee and a few pastors 
And then the second thing was uh, we had some film stars that made their commitment to Christ, and that made headlines in the newspapers. And then we had a big breakthrough, as I would say now, uh, when William Randolph Hearst and I think uh, Marion Davis disguised themselves and came to the uh, tent that we had, as I have heard from his son, that that possibly is what happened. And he went back and sent a little note to all of his newspapers throughout the country, said, Puff Graham. Hmm. And from then on, we had reporters there every night and uh, cameramen every night, and that went clear across the country because he was the last of the great uh, uh, tycoons, Mm -hmm. unless today you would call Rupert Murdoch a great uh, uh, newspaper tycoon. Had a great deal of influence. Tremendous influence. And the Lord used that then to bring attention to the ministry, and and then a cascade began. of. of, And interestingly, uh, I never met Mr. Hurst. I never had any correspondence with him. I never uh, had any exchange uh, with him at all. And uh, it was just his, uh, he felt that America needed something like this. And then the next man, uh, shortly afterward, was Henry Luce of Time Magazine. He came to visit us, and he stayed about three days. And uh, he felt in his heart that uh, America needed another evangelist. And so he began to promote me. He became an advisor for many years after that, uh, really That's an right. informal advisor. Uh, That's right, he did. Uh, after the crusade ministry began, though, there was, a, there was an experience. Um, Forest Home, California. Talk about that experience and, and talk about what the, what the issue was in your heart that you felt you needed to settle once and for all. Well, I had been invited by Henrietta Mears, who had founded Forest Home, and she was the... Um, educational director at the First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, and a woman of God who had gotten her training under Dr. Riley in uh, Minneapolis and Northwestern schools. And uh, she put on this conference called, um, well, it was College Week, and she invited me to be one of the speakers. And then uh, she was very interested in Princeton, and she sent a lot of students to Princeton hmm. at that time. Dr. Mackay was the president of Princeton. It was a different Princeton University than now. Very different. <laughs> uh, it was Princeton Theological School. And uh, they had big debates among the speakers and some of the students about the authority of scriptures. And some of them said they didn't believe in the infallibility of the Bible. And this uh, disturbed me and uh, their arguments about it. And so one night I took the Bible and went out into the woods because that's a great forest forest home. Mm-hmm. And there was a stump where they'd cut down a tree. And it was in the moonlight. And I opened the Bible. I didn't know where it opened and just laid it down on that stump. And I said, Lord... I don't understand all that's in this book, and I don't understand all these fellows are talking about. But I said, I accept this as your word. I believe it is your inspired word of God, and I'm going to accept it that way and believe, put my the basis on faith rather than on intellectual argument and intellectual 
uh, trying to understand it intellectually. And from then on, I never had a doubt Hmm. because it's based on faith, faith that this is God's holy word. And, of course, that changed my ministry. I had a power that I never had before because I was preaching his word. Dr. Graham, you preached throughout uh, Europe in uh, 1954. 1957, it was New York City. Again, almost another plateau for the crusade ministry because New York was such a a platform for the world uh, to preach from. Well, the great uh, change took place really in London in 1954 when we would Herringay Arena every night uh, for three months. And people began to come from all over the world to see what was happening because it was so new and fresh to them. And then while there, uh, we received an invitation to come to New York by the Council of Churches in New York. And uh, I was in Paris at the time playing golf uh, with the Duke of Windsor Hmm. and uh, got this uh, notice Uh, when I came into the locker room that I was being called from New York by George Champion, who was president of the uh, the Chase National Bank in New York. And, uh, of course, I paid serious attention to it. I came back to New York. I met with them. I laid down the type of crusade that we conducted, what I believed. And, uh, of course, the committee was divided, over my theology, uh, but they felt something needed to be done in New York because church attendance was extremely low and riots were taking place and they felt a crusade at Madison Square Garden might have some impact. So we stayed there 16 weeks. Uh, You must have people come up to you all the time and say that it was in London in 1954, New York in 57, that I came to know Christ, and here's what's happened in my life since that time. I I talked with a man the other day, uh, a leading researcher in studying how Christians are being persecuted around the world today. His name is Paul Marshall. He said, I was saved at a Billy Graham meeting in London in 1966. How do you feel when you hear people recount these stories to you and see how God has used them since that time? Well, I feel that It has been only no part of me. You know, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting people of their sin and their need of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that transformed them when they make a commitment. And uh, it's the Holy Spirit that is the great follow-up agent. And uh, he uses uh, classes that we organize, or he uses churches. And uh, we have a a tremendous... uh, Preparation, uh, we just came from San Antonio, Texas, and we, we had a big stadium that seated about 60,000, 70,000 people. It was packed out every night and broke all the records of the, of the, uh, of the city and of that stadium. And uh, we had spent months with classes ahead of time teaching people the Word of God, how to win people to Christ, what verses you use in winning people to Christ. And then after the crusade is over, we have classes for the people who have come forward to make commitments. My part is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the thousands of people that are involved before we ever get there. And we'll hear more of this interview with Wayne Shepherd and Dr. Graham, as well as other recordings from the archives of Moody Radio here on Ambassador of the Gospel, 
a tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. Ambassador of the Gospel continues after this break. You're listening to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Our special program will continue in just a moment. Welcome back to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Death is the one common reality of all human life. We're all going to die. I've walked through this building a number of times. I've seen these statues of the great Americans in Statuary Hall. And they have one thing in common. They're all dead. And we're going to join them. Are you ready for that day? A portion of Dr. Billy Graham's address in Washington, D.C., at the Capitol's Statuary Hall, where Billy was honored with the Congressional Gold Medal in 1996. The ministry of Dr. Graham intersected the political life of the nation and the world. In the next few minutes, we'll hear a sample of some of those experiences. To begin with, we have a rare interview between Dr. Graham and former WMBI News Director Walter Carlson. This interview took place on the floor of the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968. Dr. Graham, uh, what are your feelings regarding being chosen to pray at both of the political party conventions this year? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, I've been asked at each of the conventions since 1952, and this is the first time uh, that I had accepted their invitations. I was invited uh, to the Democratic Convention first this year, and I said, well, I will come because it's the president's birthday if uh, you allow me to go to the Republican Convention also. And they said, why, of course, we consider you (laughs) non-political. Very good. Dr. Graham, how involved do you think Christians should be in politics? I think this is a question for each individual Christian and his conscience before the Lord, but I think that Christians today, uh, especially lay Christians, ought to get as involved as possible. Uh, Because if we don't, then the country is going to go into the hands of the wrong people. Let's continue on this theme of Dr. Graham's involvement in the political world with more from Wayne Shepard's interview about Dr. Graham's autobiography titled, Just As I Am. A good part and a very interesting part of your life story is the relationships that you've had through the years, uh, not only with common people, so to speak, but with world leaders and uh, American presidents. And uh, you say that the motivating factor for you has always been the opportunity to share Christ with everybody that you come in contact with. That's correct. That's still true today. That's still true today. And I've had the privilege of knowing 10 presidents, including the present one, for a long time. I knew all of them before they ever became president, except Truman. But you did meet to pray with President Truman on one occasion. <laughs> I did, and made a terrible faux pas and uh, an embarrassment, I think, to the White House and the whole country and certainly to me. It was Nobody a... had briefed me on when you talk to a president or a person of that stature that you don't quote them afterward. When we got out from seeing the president, uh, there were four of us. Uh, the press surrounded us and said, uh, 
did you pray with the president? I said, yes, we did. So we weren't there. We didn't get any pictures of that, and we didn't hear it. Uh, could you go out on the lawn of the White House and and repeat it? And I thought, well, there'd be no harm in that. I didn't know. And I went out there, and we got down on our knees and prayed, and that picture was on the front page all over the country the next day, much to our embarrassment. And what did the president think of that? He didn't like it. But about a month or two later, we heard that he, through a newspaper columnist, that uh, he said Billy Graham is persona non grata at the White House any longer. Did you ever get a chance to talk with him about it? Oh, yes. Uh, Years later, I got to know him in Independence, Missouri. And when I stopped there uh, and talked to him several times, he was so warm and gracious. Then the next president, of course, was Eisenhower. I got to know him in Paris through an acquaintance we had in Texas who was a very wealthy man who wanted me to go to Paris and talk to Eisenhower about running for president. And I said, I'm not qualified to talk to him for president. Oh, yes, you are. He said, you go talk to him. Eisenhower had set aside a couple hours, and I got to know him a little bit at that time. And then when he became nominated for president, he had heard that I could help him in speech writing. And so he asked me if I'd go to Denver with him and help him. He wanted to put some scriptures in his speeches. He wanted he didn't hadn't gone to church in years. And then when he became president, I saw him many times. Got to really love him and 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 know that he became a Christian. Some of the many details found in Dr. Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. The segment we're about to hear was recorded right before Billy prayed at the inauguration of President George H.W. Bush in 1989. Dr. Graham, uh, you frequently speak in your messages, as many do, about the ills of our country and how we, we have some problems. And those, uh, sometimes we can take it too seriously and just see the, the glass half empty. How do you account for the enigma that despite the fact that we have many problems when it comes to getting someone to lead in prayer, we have a thoroughgoing evangelical, uh, a Bible-believing man like yourself who's the man who's tapped to do this? Well, I think that uh, there are many Bible-believing people here in Washington. We have a number of senators and congressmen that uh, love the Lord, and a lot of their staffs uh, are Christians. And the Bushes themselves are Christians. They, they're evangelical Christians. And um, uh, President-elect Bush's uh, mother is a very devout Christian who has been with the Bible Study Fellowship, studying the Bible. In fact, I visited her in December, and uh, I thought I was going to see her, and she had a house packed with people for me to teach the Bible to. That's great. Would you just give a word of encouragement to people all across the country who are serving uh, not only nationally but in the local governments and those who maybe might considering going into that role of how important it is for believers to take these places? I think it's very important for uh, Christian men and women to offer themselves for public service. And uh, if we're to keep this country uh, the way we want it, uh, a place of freedom, of especially freedom of worship, because nearly all of us are the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and daughters of, uh, of uh, emigration, and many of those people that emigrate here are fleeing religious persecution. Mm. And here in this country, we have the freedom of worship, and may it always be so. During times of national tragedy, Americans expected to hear from Dr. Graham. 
and he always took the opportunity to present the gospel. An unforgettable moment for this country was the moving prayer service which took place at the National Cathedral just days after the 9-11 attacks. Here's a portion of Dr. Graham's message to the nation in 2001. As a Christian, I have hope not just for this life, but for heaven and the life to come. And many of those people who died this past week are in heaven right now. And they wouldn't want to come back. It's so glorious and so wonderful. And that's the hope for all of us who put our faith in God. I pray that you will have this hope in your heart. This event reminds us of the brevity and the uncertainty of life. We never know when we too will be called into eternity. I doubt if even one of those people who got on those planes or walked into the World Trade Center or the Pentagon last Tuesday morning thought it would be the last day of their lives. They didn't, it didn't occur to them. And that's why each of us needs to face our own spiritual need and commit ourselves to God and His will now. Here in this majestic National Cathedral, we see all around us symbols of the cross. For the Christian, I'm speaking for the Christian now, the cross tells us that God understands our sin and our suffering. For he took upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ our sins and our suffering. And from the cross, God declares, I love you. I know the heartaches and the sorrows and the pains that you feel, but I love you. The story does not end with the cross. For Easter points us beyond the tragedy of the cross to the empty tomb. It tells us that there is hope for eternal life. For Christ has conquered evil and death and hell. Yes, there's hope. Stay with us for the concluding segment of Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. You're listening to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Our special program will continue in just a moment. Welcome back to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Oh, the joy of knowing him and following him these many years. I covet that for all of you, young people that are searching for something to believe in, for a flag to march under, for a slogan to say, for a song to sing. It's all yours, wrapped up in Christ. A call to teens from Dr. Billy Graham as he spoke at a crusade in Washington, D.C. in 1986. Part of Dr. Graham's ministry was preparing the next generation to take up the task of evangelism. To follow through with that vision, the Graham Organization sponsored teaching conferences overseas and in the United States. Here's part of a keynote address given at the North American Conference of Itinerant Evangelists, presented in 1984. We should be like Jeremiah, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in, the, in my bones. Is the word of God like a burning fire in your soul and mine? I have to ask myself that question. It's not always there. 
And I get concerned about it sometimes. And I have to fall on my face before God. And I say, oh God, I want to be like Jeremiah. I want this word to burn in my heart. And then proclaim it with simplicity. We need to avoid the temptation to impress people with our learning or our travels or our eloquence. The Bible says the common people heard him gladly. Why? Because they understood him. He spoke their language. Another Moody Radio host who was able to interview Dr. Graham was Chris Fabry. In 1992, Dr. Graham sat down with Chris for a conversation during a meeting of the National Association of Evangelicals. Why Billy Graham? Why did God choose you like none other in this century, in the latter half of this century? Well, as soon as I get to heaven, I'm going to try to find that out, but I don't know today. I'm just a sinner saved by the grace of God. I'm the least of all God's servants. I don't have the capacities and the Uh, abilities and the talents that so many people around me have and why the Lord has chosen to use me in this way, I don't know. And and also, I think we have to uh, decide what success is. What success, some newspaper says, may be failure in God's sight. I think God looks on the inner life, and it's the inner life that I feel that I'm the, the most failing in. You were held in such high esteem, though, I'm wondering... When you wake up in the morning and, uh, and you, your first thoughts, do you ever think, my, what God has done, what God has blessed through what I have done, the, the millions and literally millions of people? No, that never crosses my mind. The first thing I think about is where I can get my first cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Graham maintained a lasting connection with several organizations and schools in the Chicago area, among them. Wheaton College, Moody Bible Institute, and Youth for Christ. In 1988, Youth for Christ held their 40th anniversary celebration in Moody Church, and Dr. Graham delivered a message titled, Five Unchangeable Truths. Here's an excerpt. Forty years ago, we came from every walk of life, but we had a vision and a zeal not only to win souls, but to evangelize the whole world. And Jim Elliott came just a little bit later out at Wheaton and went down to South America and was killed by the Alka Indians. And he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I've often thought of that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. People ask me, what is the secret of successful evangelism? And I tell them, I'm not sure what successful evangelism is except faithfulness to God. A person may be successful and never see a single soul come to Christ for years. But if he's faithful, God looks on faithfulness. Let's return to his interview with Wayne Shepherd about the book, Just As I Am. Do you ever wish you could be just Bill Graham instead of Billy Graham? I'd give anything in the world if I could go back and just be in uh, overalls and blue jeans and be on the farm. Dr. Graham, as we close here, uh, no doubt there is someone listening to our conversation today who's deeply troubled about some issue in their life. And I cannot close this conversation with Billy Graham without asking you to point to the one that you serve and and, uh, invite listeners to, to follow him as well. I don't think there's any problem that a person faces today 
that cannot be faced courageously and successfully if Christ is in your heart because the Holy Spirit, he has sent the Holy Spirit to direct us, to guide us, to comfort us, to give us peace, and to produce fruit of the Spirit. And that can happen to anyone who puts their trust and confidence in Christ. Well, how do you do that? First, you must recognize that you are a sinner. And the Bible says all have sinned. The Bible quotes David, the great king of Israel, as saying, In sin did my mother conceive me from conception on. We are born with the seed of sin. And that sin is breaking the law of God. And we're all sinners. We've all broken his laws. And the penalty is death and judgment and hell. And while we may suffer natural death, the judgment and the hell come after death uh, if uh, we don't receive Christ. But then he also loves us very much. And that's the message I'd like to leave with everyone, that God loves you. No matter what your problem, no matter what your sin, no matter how you have failed, God loves you. And God is willing to forgive you and change you and give you a new power and a new strength and a new outlook that you've never had before, if you will let him, because he will send the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and give you this uh, extra power, spiritual power. And then you must be willing to obey him and follow him. And that's the reason it's important to read the Bible, uh, to study uh, from Moody Colpoli Cheer. You can get every kind of book that would help you in uh, the Bible and understanding the Bible. It helped me because I, I used to buy all those books <laughs> that I could and uh, preached them and studied them and used them in, uh, in my witness because people need to know that when you make a commitment to follow Christ, that's just the beginning. You have to have a lifetime. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. Uh, we're all imperfect and we all are sinners and we still need the cleansing blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us continues to cleanse from all sin. And that's a great uh, uh, joy to me. You often ask people to pray with you. Would you pray with us right now and help people make that decision? Yes, if you're listening right now and you have heard the fact that you need to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Savior by faith, I'm going to ask you to bow your head wherever you are. You don't even need to bow your head. You may be lying in bed, or you may be driving down a highway. Just say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm willing to turn from my sins if you'll help me. And I turn by faith to Christ. I want him to come into my heart and forgive my sins and change my life. I turn my life over to you now. Now, Lord, you know some of the problems I face and will face more intensely after this decision. I need you, Lord, and I thank you for coming into my heart now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you've responded to Dr. Graham's invitation to receive Christ, or you'd like to talk with someone about becoming a Christian, there's help for you. Just call 888-NEED-HIM. Someone is waiting to talk with you right now at 888-NEED-HIM. We hope you've been able to catch a glimpse of the many facets of Dr. Graham's life and the scope of his ministry. For our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Bill Davis. Thanks for being with us for this time to remember and honor the life and work of Dr. Billy Graham. You're listening to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. And our thanks to our friends at Moody Radio for assistance in producing this first hour of tonight's program. Coming up in the 6 o'clock hour, a real treat. As you know, Dr. Graham made multiple visits to the San Francisco Bay Area, this last of which was made in 1997, visiting three nights in San Jose, three-night crusade in Oakland, and in San Francisco, where he returned to the Cow Palace since his very first crusade in 1958. Coming up after an update on traffic, we'll give a listen to that special crusade from 1958, and his message tonight entitled, The Offense of the Cross. You're listening to Ambassador of the Gospel, a tribute to the life and ministry of Billy Graham, here on KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.